So we are in Ephesians 2 this morning, um, and we're making our way through this. Uh, Ephesians is a wonderful letter. Paul is writing to this church in Ephesus while he's in jail. And so he's in Rome, he's in jail, he's, been, he's spent three years in Ephesus serving in the community there, planted a church there, raised up leaders there, wept as he left and, uh, that place, and now he's writing them a letter to encourage their community in Ephesus. And so we get to read the, the letter that, that Paul wrote. And so he writes because he understands that there's temptations, there's hurdles that are going to confront uh, their faith and their journey of following Jesus in Ephesus. Ephesus was not an easy place to follow Jesus. It's also not an easy place to follow Jesus in America in 2022. And so we can receive much encouragement that they received uh, as we read this letter. And so we're entering chapter two and he takes them down a, a journey, reminding them of their rescue story, uh, what they were by nature and what they are becoming by grace. And so it goes like this, and we're just going to read the first half, and then we'll move from there. So Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1, it says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We'll pause there. The Bible confronts the notion of, of blaming the world on things and on realities um, that... that I'll say it like this, the Bible has uh, a tendency to confront us in the ways that we blame things uh, to keep those things from actually being our reality. Uh, it states clearly that something has gone horribly wrong. And so consider this, um, in Georgia, we have these little pests, these little bugs called termites. Uh, in the country, the activity of termites is, is uh, most active in Florida and second most in Georgia. And so we have uh, these little insects, and they have the tendency and the ability to ruin a house. They can infest a home, they can eat the wood from the home, and they can cause great destruction. Uh, these little bugs have these massive colonies, and they can consume 15 pounds of wood a day, or material a day. Uh, in Georgia alone, uh, I'm sorry, in the U.S. alone, or in U.S., 600,000 homes are uh, damaged because of termites. Uh, in the U.S., we spend about $5 billion because of termites. And so imagine going to a home and seeing termite damage, but blaming something else that wasn't the termites. Imagine going to the home, you see the destruction that you know is termites, but the person that owns the home says, yeah, it's just because the house is old. Or yeah, they just use bear paint instead of Sherwin-Williams. Or yeah, they bought material from Lowe's and not Home Depot, and this is obviously why. Or yeah, the weather just isn't cold enough here. I mean, you're just like, are you serious? Like, it's really clear that the termites are the cause of the destruction that's in your home. And see, our society looks at the rot of this world and you know, has no answers for it, but we pretend with confidence that we know the cause. Everything's political. Everything that's, the, the cause is because leftism or rightism. The cause is because of prejudice. The cause is because of certain phobias. Those might be the effects, but our society wants to say that's the cause. 
And it's here where Paul, among many other places, makes very clear what the cause is. He doesn't give us a pass. He says, the reason why this world is in shambles and broken is because of sin. Dead and sin. Sin that leads to systemic brokenness. Sin that leads to the fracture of the family. Sin that leads to the uh, potential implosion of infrastructures. See, this isn't new to the Bible. You open up to the second chapter, or the third chapter, second page in the Bible, you find that sin is the cause. It's fractured everything. It's not because we have the wrong leader. See, nothing in this world can fix this world. The termite infestation of sin can only be fixed by the eradication of it. Proverbially, Termites are everywhere because of sin. And so we enter this text and we read first and foremost that we were spiritually dead, spiritually bankrupt. He's not writing to people that are lost. He's writing to the church. He's writing to even leaders within the church. And he's reminding them and us we were dead in our sins. See, Paul says some things that our postmodern era doesn't like to hear, but things that if we let them form us will actually bring clarity to why the world is the way it is. He says we're dead in our sins. And he gives three truths within that. He says, one, that we were, we were dead. Second, that we were enslaved. And third, that we were condemned. Let's break those down. So we were dead. It's a figure of speech that echoes all the way back to Genesis 3, where God makes it very clear that if they rebelled against God, if Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they would become dead. So this is a, uh, they're obviously not dead. They are still living. We are, apart from Christ, obviously not dead. We still have a heartbeat, but we are dead in the way that we were designed to live. See, our hearts are dead towards submission to God and enjoyment and relationship with God. So we became dead in our relationship with the source of life. Because the source of life, that, that bridge was burned, we therefore are dead to the source of life. See, our rebellion toward God and failure to submit to God has broken our primary design. We were primarily, as image bearers, designed to be in relationship with God. And in our rebellion to God, as our creator, we became dead. We were made to walk with and submit to our creator. But we rebelled. You and I alike. doesn't matter if you grew up in the church. It doesn't matter. It's not, you might not have the story that other people might have. But he says, we all alike as mankind were dead. Led to death in every aspect of life, especially in how we relate to God. So humanity was created by God and for God, and now we're dead without God because we've not submitted to God. So we're dead, he says. Secondly, we're enslaved. Um, Paul's going to go on in, in Ephesians 4, and he's going to talk about how we once walked. So there's an enslavement that he's going to go back to over and over again. See, there's the, uh, there's, here's what we know, that in being enslaved, we, um, there, there's no such thing as personal freedom and autonomy. We, are, we live in a free country, but the reality of that is autonomy is a deceiver. Assuming freedom... Um, and thinking that you can have autonomy is not a, um, is a dead end because autonomy and self-freedom apart from God leads to bondage. When we begin to think that we can have freedom in and of ourselves, by ourselves, as the captain of the ship, we can think that that is freedom, but that's actually bondage. 
Freedom is in a life that's fully submitted to God and trusting him with our life, our future, our hopes, our dreams, our relationships, and allowing him to be the guide of our life. We were never designed to be fully free. We were designed to be in submission to the God who is free and allowing him to lead our lives. And it is bondage or enslavement when we take those shackles and we put them back on and we say we want to be free apart from God. The message, uh, the paraphrase of this section and Eugene Peterson's work on a paraphrase of the Bible, he says this about this section. He says, this is his paraphrase of this section. It wasn't so long ago that you were mired in that old stagnant life of sin. You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief and then exhaled disobedience. We all did it. All of us doing what we felt like doing when we felt like doing it. All of us in the same boat. It's a wonder God didn't lose his temper and do away with the whole lot of us. He says that you let the whole world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. So we've enslaved ourselves by saying, world, you tell me how to live. I'm not going to allow God to tell me, but you instead tell me. John Mark Comer he says this about this idea of enslavement. He says, uh, the deception or temptation is always twofold. First, we want to seize autonomy from God. And secondly, we want to redefine good and evil based on the voice in our, uh, our hearts and the inclination of our hearts than the truth and the loving word of God. So we have this tendency in our attempts to enslave ourselves is that we want autonomy, and in wanting autonomy, we end up rejecting God, and in ending up rejecting God, we end up finding ourselves in bondage. So there's three major contributors to our enslavement. So we're under this idea of that we are dead, we are under this idea that we are enslaved, and three contributors that uh, enslave us. The first is this, the devil. The devil enslaves us. In this text, it says that he's the king, no, the, the king of the air. He's the ruler who has brought fog. We live in this fog. From afar, fog is pretty. But when you're in fog and you can't see anything, it's terrifying. And he has created a fog over us and allowing that to be the climate that we are in. So we won't understand this world until we take this dimension, this reality that the devil, Satan, the father of lies, is at work trying to seek and kill and destroy. See, his goal is to get us to trust to not trust the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. His attempt since the beginning is make them believe that he didn't say it. In Genesis 3, you remember the story where, where he comes up to Eve and he says, did God really say? Like that's his cunning. That's his, that's his way of trying to change trust. If we can remove trust, then we'll remove uh, obedience. And so let me make you begin to trust. Did he really say, and throughout history, that's what he has done. He's desperately trying to make us believe that God is not loving. Desperately trying to make us believe that he's a jealous tyrant and that he's withholding from us. This uh, ruler of this world. He wants us to believe that we can't trust God, but instead that we can trust ourselves. And he wants us to simply take control of our own lives and not be in submission to him. He is the father of lies. And so we're enslaved to him, the text says. We're also enslaved to the flesh. It speaks to the cravings of our flesh. 
referring to our, our fallen, self-centered human nature. In 1 John 2.16, John writes, he says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And so uh, the, the flesh feeds off of what the devil tells us and begins to make us believe that we can actually live in our own desires and we don't need God to govern and rule over us. Again, to be the captain of our own soul. So we see in this text here that we're enslaved to the devil, we're enslaved to our flesh, and then third, to the world. The devil, the flesh, and the world's. The ways of this world. There's this Babel-type atmosphere that we experience. The, the human society is longing, just like in the Tower of Babel, human society is longing to live in a world that is apart from God. We see it more than ever in our day and age. Human society is trying to reject the notion that there is a higher being that has created a good plan for us. And we want to reject that, and that is in part the ways of this world. Again, you let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. So we're enslaved. We're dead. We're enslaved. We've got these termites everywhere. And then third, we're condemned. It says that we're objects of wrath. It's painful. It's painful to hear that we're dead, we're enslaved, and we're condemned. This brings hostility in our day. How can God be both loving and also condemn? So what Paul isn't saying, before we get to what he is saying, he isn't saying that God is just has a bad temper, or he's filled with spite or malice or just arbitrary or subject to the mood that he's in. That's not at all what the text is saying. John Stott says this about wrath. Wrath is God's personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil, his settled refusal to compromise with it, and his resolve instead to condemn it. His wrath is connected to his justice. But frankly, the worst part of wrath is not this notion of a thunderbolt coming down as some fictional understanding might be. But instead, the worst part of wrath is God simply giving us what we want. It's terrifying for us to go down a path and want certain things because of the devil and his lies, because of our flesh that feeds into that and the ways of the world that we live, and living in such a way that God just says, if that's what you want, you want to pursue that other relationship, though you're in covenant with your spouse, Though you want to pursue that career or that pursuit of finances and money above all things, if that's what you want, have it. Like there's nothing more terrifying than the God giving you over to what you want. That would be a form of passive wrath. God giving you what you want. If this is what you want, you can have it. That's a part of the wrath of God. C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce So there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who say to God, thy will be done. That's one group, those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, the other group in the end, thy will be done. Again, two groups. One, those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. You know, it's interesting that Paul moves on this and he speaks to us being dead. He speaks to us being enslaved. He speaks to us being condemned. And it's interesting that Paul moves from the wrath of God there right into the mercy of God without being embarrassed of the two. And we can like live in this world that how can you have mercy and wrath? And, and Paul just goes beneath that. 
And the next verse, he's going to transition from this condemnation to this grace. So what we've just read is the backdrop so that the light of the beauty of the gospel can be portrayed. So we are dead, we are enslaved, and we are condemned. Verse 4, though. But God. Everybody say that. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together. With Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So we see first that we were dead. The second thing I want us to see is that God was rich, but God was rich. This section is oh so profound. Again, nothing in this world can fix this world. The termite infestation of sin can only be fixed by the eradication of it. But God stepped in here. He stepped into our lives. Paul is trying to get this profound truth into the guts of the church to be reminded of where they were and who God is. But God. I heard one commentator say that this little phrase is the simplest form of the gospel. But God. It could be the title of the whole Bible. The good news is so good because the bad news is so legitimately bad that we were dead, that we were enslaved, that we were condemned, and he didn't leave us there. But God, these following verses are so profound. It says, he was rich in mercy. He was great in love. It goes on and talks about how he was rich in grace and kindness, which means there's no lack, which means there's no end, that though we were spiritually, uh, had spiritual poverty and spiritual bankrupt, he has now extended his riches to us. So profound for us to consider. He says that he made us alive together with Christ, which means that we were dead and now he's brought us to life. It says that he raised us and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places, never to be get dead again, raised up and seated with Christ. See, this is the intention that God had to begin with, that we would reign with him as co-heirs reigning. And sin, it fractured that, and God is recreating that. And it says in the coming ages, we'll be baffled by this statement, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness to us in Christ. This gets personal for us. We don't realize, I don't, think, I don't think we realize how kind God is. I know I don't. There's this double descriptor, not just grace and kindness. That would be great if it says, we're going to see in ages to come the grace and kindness of God. That's one thing, but it doesn't say that. It, it doesn't even say the riches of his grace and kindness to us. It says the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness to us. Some of you, if you, um, in your love language test, may enjoy gifts. I don't enjoy gifts. Um, I don't like them. I don't know why I don't like them. Um, you counselors might already know why I don't like them. But I'm uncomfortable with receiving gifts, especially large ones. Like, for me, that's like a really difficult thing to receive. I've had a few moments in my life where I've received things from other people that were just like, no, you can't. 
And I, I struggle because I, I believe this kind of idea that I need to just earn my life. I, don't, I, don't, I can't receive grace. I struggle to receive grace. And so I struggle with this section that we're reading here. See, shame tells me I don't deserve it, that i got to earn my keep. But that's the point of grace, right? The point of grace is to confront that. It's actually pride to reject grace. It's pride to think that you know better, that you shouldn't receive the very thing that God's extending to you. So in one sense, I struggle with this idea of the immeasurable riches of grace and kindness that God has given to us. And yet in the same breath, or maybe the other side of the coin, deep down I long for it. It's this interesting tension. On one side, I, it's like I can't, I can't receive it. But deep down, it's like, this is the very thing that we long for as humans, to be fully known and fully loved. That's the definition of intimacy. And the idea that God knows you better than you know yourself. I mean, David talks about it in Psalm 139. Search me and know me. He knows the depths of who we are better than you even know yourself. And yet he's extended ridiculous grace and kindness and care and mercy to us. I just, I just keep going back to that. I mentioned it the last couple of weeks, but I keep going back to this prodigal son story as we look at these first couple chapters. It's, it's how I envision this moment to be. Again, the son squanders everything. This just became an idiot. This ruined his life. And, and he gets to this point after selling, uh, blowing all of the money that his father gave. He rejected his dad entirely. A famine hits the land, and he's like, man, I remember my dad was kind to those people that worked for him, his servants. Maybe I'll just, I know I'm not his son anymore because I, re- I, I disowned him, but maybe he could accept me as a servant. So he comes back with his tail between his legs, has this, shame-filled statement that he's going to give to his father. And then his father's just waiting for him, eyes looking out. The text says that he saw his son, which means that he was looking for his son. The text in Luke 15 says that he felt compassion and mercy towards his son. The text in Luke 15 in this section says that the father ran to the son. The son smells horrible. He's just been eating from the same, uh, the same bowl as pigs. He smells disgusting. And the father, he runs after him, not because he got his life in order, but because of riches, the riches of his grace. He um, runs and he throws him on the ground in, in, in an embracing moment. And the father kisses the son. In essence, that's what this text is telling to us, telling us, See, when we are able to sit under the faucet of this, we begin to experience the depth of the gospel that's designed to heal the deepest parts of who we are. This is the invitation of God to us. It's what the world longs for. It's what we long for, the immeasurable riches, grace, and kindness of God that's seen most clearly in the cross, this love that he has and the way that he's pursued us. But God... He was rich, which leads to our third and final section, 8 through 10. It says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your undoing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk 
in them. So we see that we're dead. We see that God was rich. And third, we see that we are God's poetry. I want to flesh that out a little bit. God is creator. We know him as creator. God is architect. He has built infrastructures that govern and rule this world. But he's also an artist. You see it in the way that he paints the skies. You see it in the way that he creates beauty even in the children that you might find yourself holding. Man, we were dead. We were dead. God was rich. And now he's recreating us for a purpose. It says that we are his workmanship. It comes from a Greek word where we get our English word poem. So when we read that we are his workmanship, it's more than what you might think it might mean. There is an artistic poetry element that that Paul is writing here. For we who were once dead in sin, in bondage to this world, to the devil, to our flesh, are now because of Jesus and his ridiculous grace, we are now his poem, his art, his handiwork. See, he is using your story, your past, your present, your future, to display his immeasurable kindness. He's using it all. He doesn't leave anything undone. He, doesn't, he always will complete the things that were once broken. He will always restore. He is a God that is a recreator. John Stott goes on. He says this, Formerly we walked in transgressions and sins in which the devil had trapped us. Now we walk in good works, which God has eternally planned for us. The contrast is complete. It is a contrast between two lifestyles, evil and good, and behind them two masters, the devil and God. So he's recreating our lives by his grace for his namesake to display his kindness. May we work in our attempt as he is seeking to recreate this poetic nature of our lives. We work with all of our heart to develop character and growth in our lives. But in the end, we will agree with Paul and what he said in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, where he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Friends, this is our story. We were dead. And if you don't believe that you were dead, you will never understand the beauty of the gospel. You were dead. I was dead. Enslaved. Enslaved to all kinds of things. And again, for you, it might not have been that you were enslaved to drug addiction. It might have been in slavery to pride. It might have been in slavery to religious merit to try to prove yourself to God. It can be across the board, all kinds of things. But we were enslaved. And we, and yet we were, we were dead. We were enslaved, enslaved. We were condemned. And yet God was rich in mercy, rich in grace. This is our story. This is the message that Paul is trying to encourage the church with. The termites were everywhere, ruining everything. But God came and eradicated them. And he's making all things new. So friends, I just want to close by reminding you that you don't have to pretend that your story is something different. This is our story. Dead, broken, fractured. We still feel it. The power of it's gone, but the presence of it is still there. I mean, let's be honest. We feel it. 
We feel the draw to put the chains back on. We feel the draw to try to prove ourselves to this world. We we feel the draw of trying to be our own God and govern our own lives and control our own worlds and control our own kids, control our own future and control our own finances. I mean, the story just goes on and on. And yet God's inviting us. Trust me. The devil's tempting us. Don't trust him. God's inviting us. Trust me. And Paul's inviting the church. Trust him. Don't trust the ways of the enemy. Don't trust your flesh. Don't trust the world. Remember how kind he was. He can be trusted and therefore obeyed because when you lose trust, you can't obey. So remember how kind he was to you. Friends, this is our story. So we can exhale. We can exhale knowing that we have a father, a creator who cares. And not just cares in some general sense, but like cares with such depth that he would send his son to rescue us and now send us the Holy Spirit to seal us. So as we close, I want to just pray aloud with you a prayer of confession to reset ourselves upon this. And then from here, we're going to enter into a time of communion. I invite you to Pray this with me as we close our time together. Let's pray together. Father, who is rich in mercy. You guys can, you can pray with me. We'll try that again. That was not good. <clears throat> Let's pray aloud together. Maybe I wasn't clear. That's probably on me. Father, who is rich in mercy, I confess my desire to hide in my pride. I confess that it feels safer to live in my shame. I confess that I have let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell me how to live. I also confess that I was made to be loved by you. Father, who is rich in mercy, would you give me the grace to receive and know the love you have lavished on me. By the work of your Holy Spirit, Let me deeply know the riches of your mercy. By the work of your Holy Spirit, let me deeply know the great love you have for me. By the work of your Holy Spirit, let me deeply know your immeasurably rich grace and kindness toward me. Give me the strength to live as a child who has been deeply loved and not an orphan who has been deeply So, Father, as we enter into this space of communion, I just want to reset on that last phrase. Give me the strength to live as a child who's been deeply loved and not an orphan who has been rejected. Our temptation is to do the latter. Lord, I ask by your Holy Spirit, you let us be more anchored into your love and your care. But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, he made us alive in Christ. So that in the coming ages, he might put on display the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us. Lord, even by faith, I pray that you would help us to experience more deeply this truth. 
We give you thanks that you broke into our story to rescue us. Thank you for your kindness.